Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. Super happy to have you here today. Thrilled for this interview. We work really hard to bring you people of all types with different backgrounds. And when I say types, I mean Enneagram types, of course. And occasionally we strike gold and get the opportunity to have uh, women fives, women Enneagram fives on the show. We've had some really great ones recently. Sarah Fay, check that one out. Aaron Lane, check that one out. And we have another one for you today that I'm super excited about. I'm talking about Kelly Thompson. She is a woman's leadership coach and speaker, and she helps women advance in the rooms where decisions are made. We need more of that, right? She is the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program and author of Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. And we have a great conversation with Kelly today. We talk all things Enneagram 5, how to get out of your head and into your body, how to have more of a balanced expression of heart, head, and gut. And we also talk about how she moves to seven in stress and how she has effectively moved to eight in health and security. So this is a great interview, and uh, she is a find for us. So happy to have her on the show today. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Kelly Thompson, Enneagram 5, author of the new book, Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. Welcome to Typology. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. We are so excited, as always, to have a woman five on the show. You are a social subtype. We'll get to that in, mm-hmm. in just a minute. I want to know first, as we always do, how did you learn about the Enneagram and how did it impact your life? So this is so typical five. So I grew up in corporate America, learning and development, never met a personality test I didn't like. DISC, Myers-Briggs, I was certified in the Myers-Briggs. I was a Myers-Briggs girl. INTJ, for those listening, a D on the disc. And I remember I was working and my coworker had this little graph on her wall. And I was like, well, what is that? And she said, well, that's the Enneagram. And I said, oh, Enneagram. So I did a quick Google and I'm like, I'm like, is this even validated? I'm like, where's the data? You know, like, let's, let's go in and look to see if this is really a thing. And so, of course, you know, I kind of dismissed it and, you know, life went on. I was actually going through some of just my own religious stuff. I grew up Catholic. I took a tour through evangelicalism and I was really just trying to figure out like spiritually where I was at and what I believed in. And so I came across Richard Rohr. At the time, no clue Richard Rohr is like a thing with the Enneagram, right? I heard him on Oprah. I'm like, wow, I really love this guy. You know, so I read some of his books, like Falling Upward, and I subscribed to his daily devotionals. And, you know, following him for probably about six months, well, sure enough, he decides to run a series on the Enneagram. And I'm like, well, I'm like, if Richard's talking about it, then, you know, maybe (laughs) this is a thing. And so I start to dig into it and I'm like, okay. And I actually went to the Enneagram Institute and took their test. And it came back and I remember my top three numbers, I think were like one, nine, and then three or five. So I just kind of took it at face value and I said, oh, okay, I'm a one. Went through life and, you know, I think there is a lot of one-ish tendencies that I have as a five. Like I like to be factually correct. 
that's always enjoyable for me. So, you know, I, I did see and experience some growth, like for a while thinking I was a one, I thought, well, maybe I just have a really strong nine wing because I just don't seem as maybe as rigid as some, someone's. So anyways, I'm learning about this and I'm like, you know what, this could actually be a really powerful tool, of course, because, you know, it talks a lot about what motivates us and what holds us back. And, you know, at that time I had left corporate and was running my own coaching practice. And I'm like, you know, I think this could actually be more helpful to folks than using the Myers-Briggs, which was the assessment tool I was using for my clients. And so I was going in and researching some ways to get certified so that I could learn more about it and, you know, make sure that I was administering this properly and decided on going with the integrative Enneagram. So they um, send you this test and there's this called the IEQ9 and I take it. I'm like, okay, I'll come back as a one. And I get my report back and it says I'm a five and I'm like, a five. And I'm like, I'm not a curmudgeon. I'm not like somebody who sits in a basement playing video games all day. Cause I think sometimes we get really caught up in some of the stereotypical things of, as a, you know, as, as we do, cause we see memes on Instagram and that's a whole other conversation. But I remember though, okay, I'm like, okay, I'll read to this report. And I read through the report and like, I was just like, I felt almost like a shame bath, like wash over me because nothing has ever described my inner experience more accurately. And I I remember I had the report on my desk, on this desk right here, and I read it and I was like, oh my gosh. And I had to get up and go for a walk because I was like, do I really, who knows about this? Do I really do that? Is that how people perceive me? And I remember sharing with my husband who was not Enneagram informed at the time. And he's like, yeah, Kelly, that's pretty much you. And I'm like, do I really manage my time with such misery? He's like, yeah you do. He's like, am I really that stingy in my resources and like guarding people's access to me? He's like, yes, sweetheart, that's you. And then when I read like the social five part of it, I was like, this just literally describes my entire way I've approached work and relationships and all of it. And so that's been my journey in finding my own type. And again, it was so powerful for me to recognize how much I was in my head, what motivated me, what held me back, that's just through my own transformational journey, it's really then something now I only use in my coaching practice with my clients wow. as well. Mm. Wow. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, of course, we contain all nine types. I was thinking, and so, you know, we are just are, we have one dominant type that sounds more like us than the other eight. One of the things I was thinking about with a social five and a one where you could have gotten confused is social fives love the aggregation of information as fives do, but they also like to teach it. Mm-hmm. They like to oftentimes, and when they're not in a great space, they can be really condescending with it. Mm-hmm. So a little finger waggy, mm-hmm. like an unhealthy one. So what happens is they'll say, let's say you're, you know, this is going to be a little stereotype, but you're a college English professor and you're a, a social five. You may go to somebody, well, of course, you know, Chaucer spoke Middle English. And the person we get might say, well, I don't, I don't know Chaucer. And then they might go, excuse me, you don't know Chaucer, which is that I have information. Knowledge is power. Knowledge makes me a little bit superior to you. They can be like fours, a little elitist. They can look down their nose at someone who doesn't know the information that they do, and it can come off a little bit shaming, which can feel like an unhealthy one. What do you think? Mm -hmm. So you just described every piece of poor feedback I've ever received as a corporate trainer in my 20s. (laughs) 
Oh my it, gosh. I mean, wow. it's because that was the journey of me in corporate America was I, you know, I actually started in sales, which people are like, what? You were a salesperson? I'm like, well, let me tell you how I did it. I specialized in some like very specialist part of the sales process that only certain people knew. So I got all the referrals. Well, then I became a sales trainer. And so, you know, because I had this expertise, people would come into the classroom and like I would get impatient with people when they didn't get things super fast. Or I would talk about things at a really high level where people were just felt intimidated by me. And that was a lot of the feedback that I got was like, well, she's really intimidated because she's all the way up here and we're down here in the beginning. And you know what? I don't want to say anything, but sometimes she makes me feel stupid because I'm not getting it fast enough. And I remember even just applying for that job. I had a leader who she actually didn't hire me the first time because when I interviewed, even I was that way. And I remember mm. she came in when I, or I asked her then for feedback on why I wasn't hired for that training job in the first place. And she sat me down and she said, Kelly, she said, do you know the difference between confidence and cockiness? And I was oh, like, wow. I think so. And it was honestly some of the most life-changing feedback I'd ever received because she, in fact, let me know with a lot of directness and a lot of kindness that I, in fact, wasn't as clear on the difference between confidence and cockiness as I thought. But that was really going to be, you know, my piece of work, I guess you could say, like my Mm -hmm. development path as a corporate trainer and a corporate leader is to really toe that line of, you know, how often am I discounting other people's ideas because they don't get it as fast? How am I maybe coming across cocky? Because I'm like, oh, well, you should know that, you know? Mm -hmm. And that really was something that I always had to watch, especially in my in my early years. Now, I wouldn't say that that's I don't think anything fully ever goes away, but I do have to be really, really mindful not to be so quick to be like, oh, well, you don't know that. And to instead yes. be a little more curious. Yes. And sometimes I think with fives who are self-aware, they realize that there's a little buttressing of self-esteem that's <laughs> coming through the knowledge. I think that social fives like to be associated with an in-group. So it could be the in-group of who knows this information, you mm-hmm. know, and or who has this title or this credential, which is very important to social fives, these little totems mm-hmm. of five success. Uh, they like people to know about those. And so part of, an, of the in-group, and we know that makes sense for a social subtype because you're trying to establish your value to the herd. And if you're smart, you're going to end up in the middle or the front of the herd and not in the back where you can easily get picked off. So anyway, just a little something for people about social fives. I think it's I think it's always fascinating to figure out what it is that these little nuanced expressions tell us about a particular person. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so you've written this book about the confidence gap, and it's an interesting topic for an Enneagram five to take on. Social fives obviously are a little more social than self-pres, you know, socially minded than the other two. What's been your journey? Well, first of all, define to me for me what you mean by confidence, Mm -hmm. because it's one of those words that not everybody, everyone thinks they know what it means until someone asks them. And then also what what the journey for confidence has looked like for you as a five. Mm, Okay, this is a good one. So I would define confidence as the ability to trust yourself. Hmm. And not just to trust yourself, but the ability to take action on that. So the reason why I wrote this book as a five was I literally wrote the book that I needed to read. And I think sometimes people might get confused because they might think, well, fives seem confident. 
Well, that could be true when we have knowledge. But you have to remember, I think, too, that the world is made up of places where you aren't always going to have all the knowledge that you need to be successful. And I, you know, start in the book by just even talking about how even like an over-reliance on head knowledge, like Mm -hmm. led me down the wrong path. You know, I just thought, well, if I can get enough education and I can get into the right job with the right people, get into the right group, Ian, just as you were saying, everything will be taken care of. You know, I'll be smart enough to make my own decisions, you know, make the right decisions. But, you know, one of the things that became really apparent to me as I, you know, got married early, which means I got divorced early, I hopped into another relationship right away. We were engaged and I called off that relationship about three months before the wedding. And I was undergoing a massive career change. And this is all in chapter one of my book, but it's, I was in debt up to my eyeballs because of all the divorce and everything. You know, I had a daughter that, you know, she was relying on me for support. And I remember looking back at that and I'm like, well, I thought I was going to be happy and successful because I followed all these rules. Like I'm smart. I should, like, if I'm so smart, why is my picker broken? Why can't I pick the right relationships? And that was in 2016. And I would say that was the really big aha moment of when my journey started of how much I thought that if I just shut everything off from the neck down, And I just rely on everything from the neck up, which is honestly what we teach in corporate America leadership development anyways, is neck up, I always say neck up leadership development. Then like, I'll be happy and successful and figure it out. But all my wrong, like turns in life, all my wrong decisions is because I had no idea how to use anything from the neck down. I had Mm. no idea how to trust my gut. I had no idea how my intuition told me yes or no. And so, you know, I think a lot of my journey to confidence in writing this book was like learning how to trust yourself beyond what the the rules have told you at work, beyond, you know, what you, you know, think in your mind. It's the journey to trust yourself that when you're sitting in a corporate meeting and you have an idea, but you're like, oh gosh, I don't know if this has been vetted. What if I what if I speak up and people think that this is stupid? It's that ability to trust yourself to say, you know what, like this has merit because this is like nudging at me and I can speak up and I can articulate my ideas. I can make choices for myself because I can trust my gut, even if they go against what other people have to say. Like it was really the whole book of closing the confidence gap was really the, I I simply wrote the book that I needed to read quite frankly. And it was really just a journey of, you know, how do you, you know, bring your life back in alignment with your values, learn to trust your heart and your gut, and that they have just as much merit as your brain. And then how do you use that to speak up to set boundaries to, you know, take next steps forward and to make confident decisions? Mm. So everybody, I want you to notice something about what Kelly is talking about here, because this is pure Enneagram material. She spent some time over relying on her head, which is pure Enneagram five stuff, right? So then she realizes that in order to make good decisions, to move through the world with more ease and comfort, intelligence and confidence, that she had to bring her gut and her heart into balance with her head. This is a lot of what the Enneagram teaches, right? Mm -hmm. We, You all know we've talked about subtype stacks before. If you look at the subtype stack, the head would be on top, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then action would be on the bottom. So that's the repressed center in the bottom there. So what we want to do is bring all these into balance so we have access to what? Those three different brains. 
right? Your head is a brain, your gut is a brain, your heart is a brain. In other words, they have intelligences that they can share with you. I wonder too, Kelly, if what you're describing here is maybe one of the reasons your picker is broken. Mm -hmm. Oh, it totally was. And I will never forget, I was sitting, the the two ways, like I would say my gut kind of came back online, was I was kind of going through this whole, I think I need to call off my wedding. And I had a close coworker I was confiding in. And I will never forget, she told me, she said, and I was going through all the drama, you know, of course, I'd made my pros cons list, I probably had a damn Excel spreadsheet, you know, those sorts of things. You know, I was googling the internet till 2am, do I call off the wedding? And she just looked at me and she said, Kelly, God is not the author of chaos. He is the author of peace. And in that moment, like I felt tingles down my spine because like, how can you not just be like, I know what peace feels like and I want so much of it. Mm. Fast forward like two or three years, right? Like I started to kind of have like this, whoa, like there's something else going on here. I was um, working for a leadership development company and they wanted me to do more coaching. And I thought, well, I better go get some training in how to be a coach because I kind of felt like, again, as a five, like I'm driving without a license here. Like I need to go get some education. So I go into this coaching program and as part of this coaching program, they do a lot of mind body work. And I remember thinking to myself, that sounds uncomfortable. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'll just skip the part, the week where they talk about mind body work, because they were going to do a body scan and we were going to hop into our bodies and learn how our bodies said yes and no. And I'm just like, oh, like, isn't there a spreadsheet we can make for that? You know, but then, you know, we got to the week and I kind of thought to myself, I'm like, well, I paid for this, so I should probably go and do it. So I remember the instructor like walks us through a body scan where they have you walk, you know, just notice your body from your feet all the way up to your head. And then we walked into a situation that wasn't so awesome. And we would notice how our bodies would respond. And I remember feeling like this, this feeling in my sternum. It was almost like dropping steak on a grill, like a sizzling. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like all of a sudden in that moment, I could trace that feeling back to the night before I got married, my first husband, to roles that I took that were wrong for me. I could trace it to the feelings that I felt with the individual before I called off the wedding. I could feel it in all of these different areas of my life where I knew like it, this was not going to work out well. But then they also taught us like what it feels like, like when you're kind of moving in alignment with your values, right? And you're doing the right things for you and how that just feels light and airy and a little more fizzy. And I will never forget, like, it's almost as if like my whole gut or body said, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're here. We have so much to tell you. And that Mm. sounds so weird, but I heard that little voice. I have so much to tell you. And for the next weeks, and honestly, even month after that, it's almost as if the floodgates had opened. There was just so much coming through that I just felt overwhelmed because I had all these feelings and all these sensations. Remember, and as a five, I'm like, what are you doing with my body? You know? And so it really became a journey of, you know, really learning to trust those, to backtrack when things hadn't gone well, and really learning how to integrate that. But I will never forget opening up this source of wisdom. I also told myself, I said, I'm going to make trusting your gut sexy in corporate America again, because this is what is missing, I think, from so many good decisions. And I think like not trusting our gut, especially I work with a lot of women, not trusting our gut and leaning into our values, like really sometimes can take us astray, right? Because we're just following advice blindly without even stopping and ask ourselves, like, do I even want that? Like, how does that feel in my body to say yes or no to that? It's interesting because I do coaching in the corporate space and, you know, tons of workshops and particularly on the Enneagram, but also more broadly, just coaching. And one of the things I just oftentimes say to, I mean, you know, sort of high achieving 
types is I just go, well, what do you want? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they look at you like, you know, you just invented some like magical question. It's like, well, they'll say like, you know, this is happening. This is happening. I'm not sure. What it's-. I said, well, what do you want? And they go like, does that, did that matter? Or like, I didn't even know that was mm-hmm. a question. And that's a gut question. Like, what is mm-hmm. your, what do you want? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, actually, I, I don't want to be in this job anymore. And I go, okay, well, tell you what, let's kind of walk through that together. And then let's make a decision. And obviously, we're going to bring in the heart. We're going to bring in the head. We're going to use critical thinking and, and all of that. But I just want to know what you want first. Mm-hmm. you know. And I think it's a good question for every type as we face life and what and decisions, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, what do you want? Yeah. And listen to what you want. One of the questions I love to ask, because I had to learn to ask myself too, is when you ask people, what do you want? Sometimes we're, and I remember even like when I kind of had my whole, I call it mid thirties crisis, I couldn't have told you what I wanted, Mm -hmm. but you know what? I could tell you what I didn't want. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of led into that. And that's one of my, you know, favorite, you know, coaching questions too, is when you say, well, what do you want? You're right. Because people are like, I've never even stopped to consider that. But I bet you can can, can tell me what you don't want. So Mm -hmm. let's start there. And I think that's such a powerful way to clear out all of the things that we've been told, all of the things we intellectualize. So we go, I know I don't want any more of that. Let's just start declaring and saying no to everything that isn't that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. What about... You said you went away and had this, you know, you got this education and you had this particular week where you did a deep dive into connecting with your body. And I'm just thinking about our Enneagram fives that are out there that don't have access to a week like that. Mm -hmm. Where do you start and how do you start as a five to begin to pay attention to that intuition? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you where I start with my five clients or just a lot of my head E clients is sometimes when they get going on something or they come to a call and They're like, okay, well, what do I do? This, that, and the other thing. This is an opportunity. I just stop and ask. I said, okay, when you've been talking about that opportunity, can you tell me what's happening right now in your body? And they're like, oh, (laughs) they're doing all the things that, you know, I would have done. And sometimes it still takes me a minute too. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What is happening in there? You know, but I really just start slowly with like, if I see them get really excited about something, pause, where are you feeling that in your body? Is it in your chest? Mm-hmm. Is it in your stomach? Well, how does that feel? Can you name the sensations? And so if they don't have a week-long experience, one of the things, and I think this is the gift I think sometimes fives bring to the world, is I've always been acutely aware of my energy, maybe not so much my gut, but my energy. Mm. And so I'll just phrase it that way. Like, what does that do to your energy when you talk about that? Oh, that's good. Yeah. And so if people, if it's an opportunity where you can hear their voice kind of going, oh, I'm like, okay, right. tell me, what did that do to your energy? Sometimes, like, I think that's a really easy kind of toe in the water for fives because, like, Mm. ooh, that kind of drained my energy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that anywhere in your gut or your body? Or if you can tell they have an opportunity and they're really excited about it, I'll just ask them, ooh, like, what did you notice about what happened to your energy right there? And sometimes those little toe in the waters, like, I just tell them, just like, let's just start noticing our energy. Let's just start noticing your energy and see what happens. Mm. So I want to just circle back to something I think everyone's going to be interested in. And I have a bunch of other little questions for you. Mm-hmm. You said that your picker was broken. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you. You're getting all nervous. I can see it on your face. But I want to know, so as a five, what do you think went wrong in those relationships? Or went, let me know, let's not mm-hmm. label it wrong. Let's just call it what went sideways in mm. those relationships. And what did you learn about yourself as a five in a broken relationship? So I had just had this conversation with another five last Friday. And this is one of the things that I wrote a lot about in my journal 
is my first husband was emotionally, verbally abusive. Second one was a little narcissistic. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, I could blame a lot of things, but there's a common denominator in all this and it's me. And so I had to go back and really account for all the reasons why my picker was broken and I got into those relationships. A lot of it was, as I remember like hearing kind of this still small voice. I mean, I grew up Catholic. So like, you know, the fact that I got divorced, I was certainly on the ride to hell, you know, and a lot of the teachings that I learned growing up. I remember even hearing this voice. It's like, you know, I have forgiven you, but you have not forgiven yourself. So one, I think I was just carrying just a lot of like shame. Like I didn't deserve to be treated better, but I'll tell you, I think that actually the number one thing is I was emotionally unavailable. Hmm. I wasn't comfortable with emotions. Like, let's just be in this relationship where like, I can be over here and be my own contained person and not really get into too much of the messy stuff. And you can be over there. And I think if I had to go back in and trace why my picker was broken, it's kind of this philosophy I had that like, like attracts like. And so because I was emotionally unavailable, of course, I was attracting emotionally unavailable people as well. And so one of the things I really had to think about too was, well, I don't even know what I stand for. Like, well, what do I stand for? What does like healthy emotional availability look like? What does a healthy relationship look like? And I had to be first very clear about the things I no longer wanted. Well, I'm like, if I no longer want emotionally unavailable people in my life, like I need to take the risk of being emotionally available. And like, oh, you know, I mean, this is before I knew I was a five, but I knew that that felt like, oh, and so I really had to think about, well, what does that look like? Well, how do I, like, what are my values? What do I value in a relationship? Like, what does emotional generosity and safety look like? And, you know, if I want that type of relationship, like, I have to be that type of person in the world. Like, I can't continue to go through the world unavailable thinking that I'm going to attract somebody, you know, who who is that way. And when I met my husband, you know, I had done a lot of my own work about like, what are my values? How do I want to live my life? What do I no longer want? I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, if I want someone to take a risk on me, I need to take a risk on someone else. And that risk means just being a little bit more open, a little bit more available, but also having really strong boundaries about the things I am no longer going to tolerate. Like the old stuff, I can say no to that. I have really good discernment now of what that looks like. But I would say that at the core of it, I really had to learn to dig deep into my values and open my heart and really just yeah, be more available if that's what I wanted to attract in my life. Mm. I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of fives. So I just think about where fives go in security, which is to eight, and where they go when they're sort of decompensating, falling apart, which is to the low side of seven. Mm-hmm. And let's start with that. Let's just talk about what it's like when you go to a bad space on the low side of seven. Like, how do you experience it? And how would others experience you when you're Frenetic there? energy, 100%. Mm-hmm. So when I can trace back my life's, my life in great times of stress. So when I was, you know, married in my 20s, you know, obviously the ho- home life was not great. Home was not a place I wanted to go. And so like that frenetic energy really served me because what did I do? I'm like, well, I'm going to go be a part-time professor at the local university. And then, you know, I'm, I'm not home two nights a week. I'm going to go get my MBA. I would get bored in jobs really quickly. So I would kind of job hop a little bit. I think some of that too is just a fives need for just like insatiable learning, but just the frenetic energy of like not being able to sit still or always needing something new to distract me. Because if I could constantly have that new thing to distract me, I wouldn't have to come to face the terms that my home life sucked. 
So like even today, like in my business, I can always tell when I'm really stressed out because the energy just gets really, really frenetic. I can't focus on one thing. I got to go do all the things. Like I just get really distractible. Like that's how I always know. I'm like, wait a minute, slow down. You're stressed out. Mm. All right. Well, let's talk about confidence in the eight, right? Because, you know, when a five goes to eight, it's like one of the biggest, if not the biggest security jump on the Enneagram. Like the difference between a five and the high side of eight is so enormous that when people see a five at the high side of eight, they're like, oh my gosh, did, was Kelly blowing Coke today? Because she <laughs> is crazy. And I would imagine because eights are so confident, typically, not all of it, but you know, at least the, the appearance of, of confidence, that that's got to be part of this whole journey for you. 100%. Because I think one of the biggest things that I learned was that it's not going to shock any of you all that two of my top Gallup strengths are input and learner. But <laughs> one of the things I had to learn, and I think a former colleague of mine very gently did this to me, he gave me this book called The Knowing Doing Gap. And... <laughs> Yes. That's one of the that's one of the biggest jumps. And I, I didn't know it was a five, but I'm like, this is a really good book. And big jump for me as an eight is when I can realize, Kelly, you have inputted a ton today, but what have you output? The other big jump for eight to me, honestly, was writing the book. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the act of writing. It's the putting of the book out into the world. It's overcoming mm-hmm. the discomfort. Because I think for me personally as a five... The number one thing that holds me back the most from like probably fully being, you know, looking like a healthy eight is just knowing that when sometimes when you put things out into the world, it commands attention. And sometimes the good attention is fun, but it can also command a lot of questioning, scrutiny, people disagreeing with you. And I'm like, oh, I don't have the energy to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And all the time I think about that, like, oh, I could show up more. I could maybe see myself taking a like stronger stand in things. Um, Maybe I could see myself, you know, advocating, but I'm like, oh, do I have the energy for all just the comments and the criticism that's going to come with that? And so for me to really show up in my eight, okay, you're going to, you're going to laugh. I have this little card sitting next to my desk all the time that just says, let them be mad. (laughs) Cause it's just like this reminder that like, you know, eight. So my dad is an eight and like, they just have this way of like personal power moving through the world. Like, you know, yes, being powerful, but intense in a way that's just like, I'm going to do it because this is the right thing. And when other people are mad, like, Let's have a challenge because debate's my dad's love language. You know what I mean? And he loves it. We go home, Ian, you'd love it. We go home for family stuff, right? And we cover all the topics like abortion, gun control. What's the latest between Democrats and Republicans? I mean, then he just loves it. Like that sort of debate and energy just energizes him, you know? And we can all have a debate around like the Thanksgiving table. We all walk away and he's like... I feel so loved by my kids, you know, I just don't have that. But I think that card just reminds me of like, there is a way of being in the world that you can take a stand on things and create healthy debate without attaching to any of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what eights in my life really model. And I have to remember that, but it's really, really hard. It's just easier to be like, oh, you know. It's also the thing that is a little overwhelming for fives with eights. And I've seen this in the corporate space because I actually work with a company where the entire senior executive team was eights with a couple of threes. And the largest division of the company was about four to 500 coders. Wow. That were 
I can't tell you the company called it. It would make complete sense if I told you what company would have 500 coders, but whatever. Mm-hmm. And the aides were like, you know, we're having trouble connecting and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, so you've got this overwhelming energy that's mm-hmm. moving into that space, right? And I said, you know, you can, aides are, you know, they can be impulsive and they can formulate opinions very, very <laughs> fast. And sometimes not even thinking about them, they're just spitting them out. Right. Like just and something, you know, being controversial just for the heck of it. Whereas a five wants to take time and formulate a very intelligent, rational answer and doesn't have time to catch up to the eight's energy. Yes. And then and then can go to the low side of seven because they're overwhelmed. And then it just becomes like word salad as they're trying to get into, you know, the conversation. So I I've seen that play out any mm-hmm. any number of times in the relationship between eights and, and fives, you know? You hit the nail on the head, you know, and that was one of the things I really continue to struggle with. I, in my book, I wrote, I wrote about this whole advocacy model because one of the things I really noticed, especially like when 2020 hit, there's all these people out there like taking a stand right away. And I think it was Morgan Harper Nichols you were talking to, and she articulated it so perfectly for fives. She's like, I need like two weeks to even figure out what I think about it, you know? And I'm like, yes, I'm like, that's it. It's like, because like, okay, we got to play out all the connections. And then what about this? And is there a both and here and everything's in gray? Well, then what's my stand? And like, so yeah, by the time that like, you know, I'm ready to take a stand on something like that's two weeks old news. And so I love how you articulated Mm -hmm. that sometimes with fives is like, you know, there's just, usually my first articulation is not my final opinion, if that makes sense. It's like, I need time to connect. So this book, I would argue is for anyone. (laughs) However, it is targeted or skewed toward women in the marketplace. Yes. Yes. And I just want to sort of wrap up with that because, you know, obviously women fives are kind of in the world sort of perceived as oddities. You know, I remember speaking once with a woman who was a five and she, she said, I just had so much guilt for so long and, and so much sort of self-hatred because everybody expected me to be warmer and more deferential mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. more emotionally available and this and that. And I just wasn't. And I wasn't, you know, I had a different relationship with my children than other types have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean let's just talk about gender norms and stereotypes, how that affects women fives and particularly in the workplace. And how did you navigate them? Mm-hmm. Yes. To all of that. So like our, our whole family is Enneagram informed. Now I, my mom was a two. So my whole life, I remember hearing this message that me socially was wrong because, <laughs> you know, here is my mother who is just very socially aware. There are norms that we follow. And especially she fit very nicely into those gender norms of, you know, understanding how to navigate friends and gossip and being nice and showing up and dressing up and all the things. And here was me, this little five who had no desire to engage in any sort of like social norms. I didn't even know what those were. Like I would just show up and be direct and whatever came in the brain went out the mouth. And I can tell you, my mom has stories of just days that I just left her mortified. So my whole life, I just remember, I always just felt something was wrong with me socially. It wasn't easy for me ever in high school to be part of like the girls group because I just didn't get the whole girly gossipy. I didn't understand it. It just felt so foreign to me. 
because I was direct. I was unemotional. I don't have time for gossip. I can't stand it. Like I'll walk away from a group, but that's just, you know, not how you make friends. And so when that shows up in the corporate world, I see it for women, fives, eights, and sometimes even ones, you know, this direct style about me, I really had to learn to temper um, because it's just not something that people expect you know, coming out of a woman to be so unemotional and just to be direct. And I really had to learn to bridge the gap between brutal honesty, which is easy for me, (laughs) but not always helpful when you're trying to build lasting connections and good relationships at work. So I really had to learn how to be, well, how can I be direct, but also blend it in alignment with the values that right. I want to be perceived at. And so I, right. I talk about in the book, my values are love, respect, family, creativity, and learning. And so I was like, well, I can be direct and loving. You know, I can be direct and respectful. And mm. so I think that's the things that I always see fives, you know, in the workplace really struggle with is people expect more emotion from them. They expect them to be more excited about things. They expect them to engage with just a little more like, oomph, you know, and those sorts of things. And so in reading this kind of direct and unemotional style, people can think they're disinterested. They can think they don't care. Um, they can think that they're disengaged when that's, that's just not it at all. They're just being in the world without the need to kind of conform to maybe what might be expected of them gender wise. Yeah. Wow. This has been a great conversation. Everybody, Kelly Thompson, Enneagram 5, author of the new book, Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential and Your Paycheck. Wow, this has been a rich conversation, hasn't it, Anthony? Oh, yeah. One of the things I just want to say that I appreciate about what you're bringing, Kelly, is I love when we get, you know, people of different numbers and you really do see that, like Ian says all the time, there's so much such a spectrum, like we stereotype numbers. And a lot of times in our conversations with fives, you can see people process and they respond slowly. It's just like a whole different, and what you're bringing is um, just a whole different energy. I love the way that you have so, in a healthy way, moved to eight. And I just love when our people get to experience people, kind of the swath of what you actually get within a number, not the stereotype. So mm-hmm. kudos to you. Excited about your book that, that dropped in November, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. November yep. 1st. So why don't you tell us where people can go to hear more about you? Absolutely. So the best place is you can just head to my website. I'm at kellyraythompson.com. I'm Kelly with an I, R-A-E. And then I love to hang out on Instagram at Kelly Ray Thompson and then um, at LinkedIn and Instagram at forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson. Wow. Great. Well, Kelly, we want you back on the show. Good luck on the book. And man, what a great message. Love having women fives on the show. You did not disappoint. Typology tribe. Remember these words. May you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, and may you have rest. Until next time. 